0: Hello and welcome to the learning to slay the beast podcast, a resilience podcast where we talk about all the challenging things that we're working to overcome like anxiety, obesity, health and relationship issues. My name is Sarah. Allergies are a big deal for many families and in my family all of us suffer from seasonal environmental allergies and my daughter has food allergies. She was diagnosed at 18 months with allergies to eggs, cashews, and pistachios. It's something that I've had to learn a lot about in order to keep us well and also in my daughter's case safe. I'm excited to speak with Dr. Karen Kaufman. Dr. Kaufman is an award winning and board certified allergist immunologist. She received a Bachelor of Science from Pennsylvania State University and her medical degree from Nova Southeastern University College of Osteopathic Medicine. She owns Kaufman Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology in Virginia, USA, where she's been honored as one of her region's top doctors. And today she's going to help us to understand environmental mental and food allergies. So welcome Dr. Karen Kaufman to the podcast. I'm so happy to connect with you today. Well, thank you so much for having me here. This is just such a pleasure to be able to um, share with you and with your audience. So thanks. Great. So why don't we start with you providing a little bit of a background about yourself and then how you became an allergist immunologist.
1: So when I was in medical school many years ago, I, you know, recognized that I have a knack for wanting to be with people. So for me, a medical specialty was definitely the right direction. So I actually did my initial residency, my initial specialty training in internal medicine. And, you know, with internal medicine, we primarily care for for adults And going through the process of my residency training, to be honest, I didn't even realize that allergy and clinical immunology were a subspecialty that I could even choose. Um, And so over, you know, into the over time and into the second year of my residency, I was sort of moving in the direction of wanting to pursue cardiology. And I had a couple of challenging months of residency and, um, coinciding with that, a good friend of mine was a first year cardiology fellow, and she was experiencing some of those same stressors and challenges that I was. And so it really left me second guessing, you know, myself to say, is this really what I want to do? I I really, I have no idea, you know? And, um, and so then I did a clinical rotation in allergy and immunology, and I just felt so invigorated by the fact that, you know, we were really making major changes in the quality of patients' lives. And it wasn't, it was a lot different than really just temporizing medical problems that people had as they got older. So um, I really switched gears at that time and decided that I wanted to pursue um, allergy and clinical immunology. So um, it was the beginning of a very exciting journey for me.
0: Yeah, I love that. It's almost um, one of the more proactive kind of areas, right? That you're right, you can really affect the quality of someone's life.
1: Yeah. And also, I think I really got excited about the fact that as an allergist immunologist, I get to take care of both adults and children, but within a spectrum of uh, some, a certain subspecialty where I really could be providing expert care for people throughout their lifetime. And that was really exciting for me. Um, so I really kind of latched on to it and it all it all started to
0: progress from there. Great. So many of us are familiar with environmental allergies and some food allergies to some extent, but I wondered if you could explain some of the most common allergens and then some of the best methods for diagnosing and testing for allergies. Sure. Excuse me.
1: So, you know, when it comes to environmental allergies, You know, I live here in Northern Virginia, and here we have a major problem with pollen allergens, particularly in the spring, the summer, and the fall, which is when we encounter tree, grass, and weed pollen, respectively. Um, Of course, we've got our furry animals and dust mites, which are our year-round allergens, and also mold spores, which are a problem for many people. Um, When it comes to food allergies, um, by far the most common food allergies include milk, egg, wheat, soy, peanut, tree nuts, fish and shellfish, and also sesame, which is sort of just the next one down on the the rung of prevalence. Um, But also interestingly, and, and we'll talk about this, but as, you know, as people move through adulthood, often you know, other foods, including various fresh fruits and vegetables, um, other, you know, nuts, seeds, or legumes can become problems for them. So there's really a very broad array of what we see from both environmental and food allergy perspectives. Um, When it comes to the time of diagnosis, a lot of times we will initiate that with skin testing, which is um, a really valuable Um, tool to identify sensitization to various allergens. And I do that with skin prick testing, which is an epicutaneous test. Um, Additionally, the other ways that you can diagnose environmental and food allergies are with specific IgE antibody testing, which is a serum test that, that somebody would have if they give a blood sample at a laboratory and we run specific antibody testing Um, to identify, again, sensitization to those relevant allergens. Um, Certainly, there's a lot of other ways to test that are out there. And um, even I will say that there is a full industry that revolves around food sensitivity testing. And unfortunately, a lot of these other methods of testing are really just unvalidated, and they're very minimally interpretable. So it's really important to consult with an expert to determine what kind of testing is the right place to start and the right place to progress to follow food and environmental allergens over time.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point that you bring up about food sensitivities. And I do have some of those where, you know, I'm not allergic to them, but they do, uh, certain foods react really negatively for me, like dairy. Um, But yeah, I'm not allergic. And I know there's so much confusion with people where they'll think like, for instance, my daughter has food allergies, she needs an EpiPen, but they'll think it's like, you know, kind of say just a sensitivity sort of thing. And so, yeah, I think there is a lot of confusion out there with people. And so those, they're very different test methods, correct?
1: Correct. So some of those look at um, other things like IgG antibodies for food, which is completely, completely different. Um, Mm -hmm. Some of them do hair sample analysis. I've seen things like something called applied kinesiology. There's just a ton of different kind of non-validated methods and unfortunately it's really hard and and it's become a big you know a big money product that's out there in the world and as you know especially with adults we become very focused on you know our health and our well-being and trying to you know really be introspective to look at what we're putting in our bodies and symptoms that we have Um, that may or may not correlate, that it's become a really big industry, um, which doesn't necessarily lead to answering those questions for patients. So um, unfortunately, when it comes to these you know, these food intolerances, which are really foods that cause our bodies to feel certain ways, but not because of anything that's happening in our immune system. Um, The best way to diagnose those problems is by keeping a food and symptom diary and working with an expert, whether it's an allergist or a nutritionist, um, to work through those things. So yeah, it can be really confusing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. And uh, and like I said, especially when explaining to people that like, no, no, it's actually an allergy it's right? diagnosed and yeah, there could be, you know, a severe reaction. So maybe you can dig into the kind of the reaction side. So what does actually happen in our body when we get an allergic reaction, you know, be it from an environmental allergen or in the case of a food allergy?
1: Sure. So what happens in individuals who have allergy is that they make Antibodies that are called IgE antibodies, which are specific to whatever the trigger of their response is. Whether it's a tree pollen, or cat, or dust mites, or peanut, right? It doesn't matter. So, with exposure to these allergens, our immune system starts releasing these specific IgE antibodies, which act on receptors of various types of immune cells which are then triggered to release some of their immune mediators into our bloodstream circulation and as they act on their targets or their you know their end targets this is where we start to manifest symptoms depending on what's going on and what mediators are being activated so not to get into the weeds too much but usually the symptoms that we have of allergy just happen as part of this immune response. So the entire process is kind of directed by what our immune system is doing in the setting of exposure.
0: Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And so (laughs) (laughs) then in the case, of anaphylaxis and um, that's like of course the you know more extreme reaction that all of us you know of food allergy children really fear so i wondered if you could dive in a little bit more to that reaction maybe explaining um what like what symptoms we should be watching for with anaphylaxis i've heard so much different advice um some of that saying that um you know one one symptom can be enough to be showing anaphylaxis. Other times I've heard it should be a multi-system reaction. And, you know, like I said, as a parent, you're just, you're never totally sure what you're looking for. So I just wondered if you could dig in a bit. Absolutely.
1: So when it comes to anaphylaxis, symptoms typically fall within four major categories, or these are the body systems I think that you're referring to. And I try to simplify everything and group them into big groups to help patients and parents remember them easier. So the four groups that I like to think about in the setting of systemic allergic response include the skin, the respiratory tract, the gastrointestinal tract, and the cardiovascular um, system. So As an example when we're talking about skin symptoms this could be something like hives or swelling of the skin it could be generalized redness itching or even flushing so lots of variation of skin symptoms but all completely limited to the skin Um, and just to kind of give a quick follow-up on skin before going to the others i've also heard a lot of kind of misinformation out there in the community and some people think that it's more severe if you have skin reaction on your face versus skin reaction on your torso or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that's not true. So skin is skin. So if it's only affecting the skin, that's just one body system. Um, The respiratory symptoms typically look like what we see in the setting of asthma. So this could be um, coughing, repeated coughing, um, chest tightness. It could be difficulty breathing or labored breathing. um, The feeling of being short of breath or any audible um, aspects of breathing, like what we call wheezing or strider, which are both sounds that are abnormal that are made in the setting of, of respiratory obstruction. The gastrointestinal symptoms that can occur typically are related to swelling somewhere in the GI tract. So often, you know, I always think about the GI tract as anywhere where our food goes from beginning to end. So um, we're talking about swelling inside of the mouth or in the throat. Um, swelling can also happen in the gut. And when that happens, we're really talking about manifestations of you know, severe cramping, abdominal pain, profound nausea, often it's vomiting, or it could even be immediate diarrhea. So again, you know, the body is trying to push it out and get it out some way or another. OK, Um, the cardiovascular symptoms, I think, are the ones that are the scariest, especially for parents with young children, because it's you know, it's hard to really put your finger on it sometimes. And so, you know, what we're really talking about are symptoms relating to a drop in blood pressure. So people might feel lightheaded or dizzy or they may feel like they could pass out or lose consciousness. But of course, in a young kid, especially who may not be able to verbalize that, I always tell parents that, It's always important to watch, you know, your kid's behavior. And if they go from being kind of a normal, active, you know, child, toddler, or young kid, especially, and all of a sudden become suddenly lethargic, immediately following an ingestion, to me, that's concerning. I mean, nobody's going to walk around with a blood pressure cuff on their arm, So we don't really know exactly what's happening. But to me, that would be a very worrisome sign as a parent, I would be on the lookout for that as well.
0: Okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so Are we looking for a combination of those like obviously, you know, if there's a breathing or a cardio issue that that seems like, you know, super important for sure. Mm. Um, But then, you know, I've always struggled with, okay, I'm seeing hives. So now what do I do, right? Like there's that, what's your response compared to um, what's going on? I think that can be really tricky. And then what do we do when we're really not sure, I guess, as parents? They're, these are such good questions, and they're so common because you know it, it's
1: not so straightforward in clinical practice. you know when you see your kid having a reaction, and then it's like, yeah. oh my gosh, how many body systems is this? what? you know it's yeah. very hard to put your finger on it. So what I typically tell parents is that um, anytime we're talking about a multiple body system reaction, then we should always treat that with epinephrine. So to me, that is systemic allergy. So, you know, somebody comes in with, you know, hives and can't stop coughing. You know, that's somebody that really has, you know, a lot going on, right? There's multiple body systems being affected. And multiple doesn't have to be two. It could be three. It could be four. It's, it's, you know, a lot going on, but not just one thing, you know? So Mm -hmm. for that, I would say multiple body system, yes, we're going to treat. Um, any one severe symptom, I wouldn't wait for a second body system to be involved. You know, so if somebody is losing consciousness or if they are um, losing their airway and they're not able to, you know, oxygenate because they can't respire, you know, for that, I'm not going to wait for a second body system and watch somebody struggle. I'm going to treat them, you know. So to me, any one severe symptom is going to be indicative of using epinephrine. Um, But the last question that you had, which is, you know, What do we do if we're not sure? You know, epinephrine is the same thing as adrenaline. Okay, so it's a life saving medicine, but it's also something we all make in our bodies. So epinephrine Mm -hmm. is not harmful to us. So even if there's not a very clear cut or strong indication to say, yes, you absolutely have to use it. I would much rather have parents or patients err on the side of caution and use it even if it's not 100% necessary because they're not sure. So, you know, I always tell parents that, You know, if you're thinking to yourself, should I use it? Should I not use it? Or maybe mom and dad are going back and forth between each other. Yes, no, yes, no. Or they're like, you know, where's my action plan? Or how many body systems is this? Or do you remember how to do this? Or should we go to the emergency room? Or should we just call the pediatrician? Or should we just Mm -hmm. get Benadryl? Just do it. The answer is yes. So my rule of thumb is if you consider it, the answer is yes. And then they should go ahead and use it. And even sometimes parents really struggle with that and they're like gosh i still don't really know and then like that's the you know group 3 sub subletter a is just do it because your doctor is telling you to do it like you really just need to treat and do it and seek emergency care and let the professionals take over co- with continued monitoring and you know patients may need additional medications following the use of epinephrine so it's always best to seek emergency care and to allow the physicians in an emergency department to be able to assess to observe and to treat
0: Yeah, that's really helpful too. And I think one of the things that's been surprising to me is that, you know, sometimes you are very well aware of the food allergy that your child has, but things will be, that allergen could be hidden in something that you don't expect. And so, you know, I think I always imagined like, oh, I would see her eat that kind of nut and then be like, oh my gosh, you need a treatment where it can be very sneaky and it can be very difficult to know what's going on, especially if if there could be something that has been cross-contaminated or something like that. So I think that's really great advice for parents.
1: Absolutely. I mean, for as much as we, you know, teach patients and parents to read ingredient labels. And, you know, of course, fortunately there are labeling laws in the US where some of the most, um, you know, common food allergens have mandated clear labeling, you know, even with strict avoidance that we're all practicing, you know accidental ingestions happen that mm-hmm. just is part of it and cross contact is very difficult you know so you know we think well we can read labels and we can avoid food allergens sure but where most problems happen are you know in a kitchen or in a family member's home or maybe in a restaurant or a bakery or something where you just don't recognize that those ingredients may be um maybe mixed and it may be something as simple as you know using the same spatula to remove a you know, sugar cookie off of a tray that was used for peanut butter cookies earlier in the day or something like that. And it's just that trace amount of protein that may be enough to elicit a response. So it's just really important to, you know, to manage it properly, which includes avoidance, but it also includes adequate emergency preparedness and, you know, reactions happen. So we want to make sure that we have a plan in place and we have emergency treatment available at all times.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And it it can be really tough for the kids. I mean, my daughter's only eight, and we've been dealing with this since she's 18 months. But there's been times where, you know, we've ran out somewhere and I don't have her EpiPen. And she's saying like, well, can I just have a popsicle or something? But my rule is no food like, no EpiPen, no food. Right? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, it, it's, you know, we've had to have those tricky times where it's like, no, we got to go home. Like, there's no, you cannot, you just cannot have it. And um, it, yeah, it takes a lot of diligence on the part of parents. And And I've made mistakes for sure, like where there's been times where, you know, you just don't, think it's there and you've read it and you've read it twice and, and you're still, it's, it's tough to always catch it. So. yeah, You got it. And even, I think it's hard too, because a
1: question that a lot of folks will ask is, you know, what if I have a packaged product that says, um, it, it doesn't contain whatever the allergen is, but it may be processed in a place that processes that allergen, or there may be trace amounts in there. Like Accidentally, even though it's not part of the product that that the patient would be eating, and you know the answer is you have to be prepared for the fact that it could happen at any time, and so strict avoidance includes avoidance of any possibility. So you know I agree with you. I think no 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 EpiPen or no epinephrine auto injector, no food. I'm totally with you. Um, but also you know being really cognizant of the fact that. You know, even sometimes people will say, well, I've had such and such food packaged food before that says could be processed in a plant that processes the food allergen I'm trying to avoid. So it must be fine. But it's really just, you know, there was good luck on your side on those occasions. And it certainly can happen. So we want to be really cautious.
0: No, that's a good tip too. So can you provide, I guess, a little bit more in terms of what we can do uh, to treat environmental or food allergies, and then maybe how effective some of these treatments are? Sure.
1: So you know, there's a it's that's a very broad question, so I'll try and condense my answer as much as I can. Um when it comes to environmental allergies, I really like to take really a very three step approach to management, which really includes um, you know, Avoidance of triggers as much as possible. So this is what we call environmental control measures, you know, or tips for patients to help them to reduce exposure to their allergens or at least to reduce the effects of those allergens on them. Um, So environmental controls, pretty much it's as much as we can do without necessarily needing medication. We should do all of that first. Um, For folks with environmental allergies, a lot of times it's medication therapy. And sometimes that starts with simple things that are, you know, now available OTC, where anyone can go into their local, you know, drugstore and go just pick something up and take it um, for symptom relief. Um, But there's lots of different, you know, pharmaceutical, you know, prescription therapies that are very effective for symptom reduction. When it comes to management... Um, in the long term, a great option for many people with environmental allergies is allergen immunotherapy, which is a customized treatment modality that involves changing the way that the immune system recognizes allergens. So we're kind of getting more towards fixing the underlying problem rather than treating symptoms associated with that problem. And so, with immunotherapy, often you know the outcomes that we see are reduction in symptoms from environmental allergens, reduction in need for medications, and significant improvement in quality of life. So those are some some of the main ways that we manage environmental allergies. When it comes to food allergies, unfortunately we don't have as much of an option. So really we're talking about adequate avoidance, education to learn, how to best do that and emergency preparedness. But there are some treatments that are on the horizon and things that are, you know, much newer on our kind of treatment armamentarium is to um, looking at things like oral immunotherapy specific for peanut, um, which is kind of one of our newest methods of treatment on the horizon for management, which that really involves, um, you know, of course, in a, in a, um, monitored setting, you know, in the presence of a physician, um, to start introduction of very, very small trace amounts of um, peanut allergen that are typically below the threshold that would contribute to symptoms and very gradually, you know increasing that in um, that exposure. And this um, is done through ingestion. So it's a little bit different compared to with environmental allergens, which uh, for the most part, we do that subcutaneously, although there are some sublingual options as well. Um, But with oral immunotherapy, I think, you know, the, the point of doing that is not to you know, allow someone to all of a sudden be able to make a peanut butter sandwich um, or to no longer need to carry their epinephrine auto-injector with them, but it's really to kind of raise the threshold of the amount of ingestion of peanut protein that a patient might need to have to elicit a reaction. So um, for some people, that's a um, a great option, and it's not a Great option for some people as well. Just like, you know, just like any medical therapy, you know, we really need to look at, you know, the pros and cons and risks and benefits and to choose the modality of management that's best for any patient or family. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, so that makes sense. So, yeah, I had allergy shots as a younger uh, person for my environmental allergies. So that's kind of what you're talking about with the immunotherapy there, right? Yeah, Yeah, yeah. you got it. Yeah, and it's funny because I didn't see a huge reduction at first, but as I've gotten older, I have much less, less, less regions. So I do think that it yeah. was helpful in the long run. And that is very encouraging to hear about the, the work going on with peanuts. Have you heard if, if they're kind of looking to expand that to, say, the top eight common allergens or for food?
1: I think there's a lot of excitement in the realm of food allergy on the horizon. So I know that there's lots of clinical trials that are going on and we're going to see over the next, I'm sure, you know, five to 10 years, some significant advances in the management of food allergy over time. But the thing that's so hard is that, you know, there are some food allergens, like for example, like milk, wheat, Mm -hmm. and soy, which many children will grow out of them on their own over time. And, you know, I would say to a lesser degree egg and to a much lesser degree, you know, peanut or, um, you know, fish and shellfish, tree nuts. Um, Some of those are much more persistent into adulthood. So, you know, we want to look at that too, because, you know, to some degree, we'd rather allow, you know, a child an opportunity to grow out of food allergens if they're able to. So Mm -hmm. that way, you know, that way they're not in the realm that they need to continue avoidance once they've successfully grown out of a food allergen versus, you know, having to you know, eat that trace amount or small amount of their allergenic protein, you know, every day indefinitely. It's kind of like the ongoing management of hypertension or diabetes, like you just have to kind of keep going with it. So, um, Mm -hmm. so it's tough, you know, and it's, I think patients and parents um, need a lot of counseling about that kind of stuff when it comes to helping them to choose what the right path is for them and for their family.
0: Right. And that was kind of what we were told, like my daughter has eggs and then tree nuts. And we were told it's, it's pretty unlikely that she would outgrow the nuts, but the eggs more possibility. So yeah, Yeah. it's hard, hard to know for sure. And maybe, you know, we can kind of touch a little bit on that. Like what, how does that happen? I guess like, so for a milk allergy, and you do hear that a lot of even younger babies that have it and then have outgrown it. How, how does the body, does the immune system just get stronger?
1: Um, It's sort of a development of um, a change in immune recognition that happens over time. So it's not really necessarily a strength of immunity, but sometimes the way that we recognize allergens does change a little bit in time. And so, um, you know, one thing that we'll see is that depending on the form of the allergen, sometimes it's better tolerated. Like, for example, you know, in a child, let's say, who has a history of milk allergy or even egg, you know, and we think, Okay. well, we think that the child may be growing out of their allergy when it comes time to do what we call a food challenge, which is a monitored trial of introduction. um, We tend to want to do that first with um, the food in the baked form. And the reason why is because of the structure of the protein. So, you know, the best way I can kind of make a visual picture of this. These are called conformational epitopes. So like if you have, let's say a ball of yarn, right? So I'm a parent and I, we have a big ball of yarn in our craft cabinet. So I think this is something that maybe other moms can, <laughs> can relate to, right? So this ball of yarn has fallen out of the craft cabinet about a hundred times. It's a tangled up mess. Okay. So this messy ball of yarn, let's say I took a, um, you know, a magic marker and I drew a line around half of the ball of yarn, right? So now I've got this really smooth line around this really messy ball. If I tried to line that up with a curved kind of receptor, like maybe if I made a C shape between my index finger and my thumb and I stuck that ball of yarn right in there, it would line up perfectly. And that's kind of like like egg allergy, for example. But when we bake it or when we heat it to a certain degree, that protein is going to denature. So now imagine unraveling part of that tangled up ball of yarn. Now, instead of having that nice curved line that I drew with my magic marker, I've got this series of dashes. Well, it's not going to fit into that same spot in my hand, you know, that curved C shape between my index finger and thumb. It's just not going to fit in there anymore. Mm -hmm. And that's what happens with these conformational epitopes when, when they go through heating to a certain degree. And usually that's when they're baked through an oven. Um, that protein can unwind, and so then the way we recognize it becomes different. So, you know, some of these foods, as as we start to find with time and avoidance, that allergenicity goes down. When it comes to introduction, often we'll start in that baked form, and as kids start to you know ingest that food, let's say it's baked egg or whatever um, or baked milk, you know, for a period of time, they continue to go on to develop you know improved immune tolerance, and then we can hopefully, and a lot of kids, go on to introduce that food in the regular form and then those, you know, those children would then grow out of their food allergies. So that's kind of part of the hope of, Mm -hmm. you know, with parents and children with food allergies of, you know, we hope that these kids grow out of this stuff. That's kind of the direction it goes is once we start to, you know, have that time and avoidance, and we start to see downtrending of antibody levels. And, you know, we think that kids are now in the realm of of being able to grow out of those things, then we want to go ahead and get them into the diet and allow the immune system to continue to develop immune tolerance
0: over time. That's great. And so that's kind of what we've been working on, um, is an egg ladder at this mm-hmm. point and kind of going up rung by rung. And so it is, I will say like doing a lot of it, we've been doing it at home is, you know, it is scary as a parent, those first mm-hmm. few jumps, I was like, Oh man, I'm really scared. But, um, we're starting to get some confidence. And then of course being on top of it so that she's having that enough and that we're, um, you know, making sure that we're still being safe. Right. So it's, sure. it's, you know it is a challenge for sure but i'm super hopeful that uh, for her sake at least on the egg side that that we're going to be fully successful we're not there yet but
1: uh, <laughs> we're well, going i'll definitely keep
0: keep my good thoughts in her direction hopefully she'll she'll do great with that no, thank you. Um, so I guess I'm thinking back now, maybe to like the pregnancy stage. And a lot of people wonder, like, is there something we can do to prevent environmental or food allergies? And is there a genetic component at all? And I think that's something we've struggled with, like, why did this happen? Like, both my husband and I don't have food allergies, you know, we both have environmental allergies. But it was a real surprise when when the egg allergy came out for us. And I think about that stage? Is is there a genetic component and can there be anything that we do to prevent them?
1: It's such a good question. I think there's just so many theories as to really why children develop food allergies. And so, you know, one of the thoughts for a long time has been, you know, the timing of exposure of allergens, of food allergens. And so I think, you know, the pendulum has really swung in in all directions here and i think the direction that we're going in right now is very positive and i think that was really kicked off with the um leap trial that was published in um 2015 which specifically looked at peanut but with significant decreased rates of the development of peanut allergy in infants who were at high risk, who were randomized to introduce peanut early on. So now I think there's definitely much more of a push for earlier introduction of these more highly allergenic foods. Um, And I think for, you know, for a period of time when, you know, we were really advocating the opposite really was, you know, delay introduction of some of the more highly allergenic foods. You know, I think that really contributed to the significant rise in food allergy that, that we saw you know, for many years. And I think, you know, the data shows, I forget, like, you know, over a 10 year period from, you know, the time that I finished high school to the, you know, to the time, you know, that I was in my residency, I think food allergy went up close to 20%, Um, which is just, you know, astronomical when you really think mm-hmm. about it. And now we've got over 15 million Americans dealing with food allergy. Yeah. So, you know, I think um part of what we see um is that, component of you know our genetics and our environment and that's allergies in general and there is certainly a mix but um, in this case I would say it's certainly not a you know a monogenic defect that like mom has it so baby has it or dad has it so baby has it or whatever so um, generally we will see that, there is some family history of ATP to, to some degree. So whether the parents have had a history of eczema or environmental allergies or asthma, you know, even if they don't have a history of food allergy themselves um, you know, some of those genes go into the development of our children um, then developing their own version of ATP. So many children who have um, food allergy um, may have eczema when they're um, when they're infants and toddlers. And one way that we find that children may develop food allergy is even through transdermal exposure through their inflamed skin. Um, and that may skew the immune response to develop more of an allergic profile versus having our first introduction be through the gut, which is really in the place where we develop the most immune tolerance. So um, I think that it's just really tough because for any parent who's you know, child gets diagnosed with food allergy, I think that there's a lot of stress there. And it's certainly, you know, something that parents shouldn't feel guilty about, because it's such a multifactorial, um, you know, development issue that, you know, there's, there's just so many things that play a role into it. You know, I, I think that there's not one, you know, there's not one thing that somebody did for their child to go on to develop food allergy it's just such a mix and that's hard i think for families and for parents especially to to come to terms with but i think it's important for parents to really like release that that guilty feeling and just recognize this is just what it is it's not your fault you know let's work through you know that that education and that emergency preparedness moving forward
0: Yeah, absolutely. I For sure, definitely the parent guilt. And then I've seen also that play out within my daughter where there's sort of that questioning about, well, why do I have this? You know, nobody else that I know has this. You know, why am I different? What happened for me? You know, sort of those kind of questions as well. And and certainly that's been our messaging that, you know, we we just have to move forward kind of thing. And unfortunately, we all get different um, things that happen to us in life. But yeah, there's definitely that stress and anxiety within the child, too, that I've noticed. And I wondered if that's something that, you know, do you address at all in your work is, um, and whether it's maybe a referral for therapy or things like that, that I think a lot of children with food allergies tend to be stressed about it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I can definitely, um, you know, reflect on many patient vi- visits that I've had where not only the, you know, the patient, the child, but the the parent, too. I mean, there's a lot of stress and anxiety around food allergy. And part of the way that I like to manage it is, you know, I like to talk to children Um, during their visit, like they're running the show. I mean, Mm -hmm. it is, it's about them and kids need to, especially kids with food allergy need to understand, you know, what's going on with them. And I think empowering children to recognize that, you know, they know what their allergens are. They know that they have an emergency plan and they have emergency medicine just in case. I think that that helps to some degree to kind of lessen some of that anxiety because they feel more in control of it versus, mm-hmm. you know, just that chance of running through life and having that accidental ingestion, that doesn't go away. That chance is always going to be there, but knowing that they can kind of take ownership and, and that they can, you know, they know what they need to avoid and they know that they have a plan to manage it, I think helps. So I think empowering kids to feel, you know, in control, um, is it helps for them to combat that anxiety as well
0: yeah no, that sounds really appropriate. And I've heard too, and of course, my daughter's younger, but that it can be really challenging during the teen years as well, where children are, you know, naturally maybe testing things and making sure that they're still diligent, yeah.
1: you know, teenagers, I think, are just a tough group in general, and not just with food allergy, but with a lot of you know a lot of different medical problems in management. And I think part of part of that has to do with the fact that you know, as you know, kids going to visits, if their, you know, doctor is not engaging them in in their own healthcare, then they kind of tune out of it a little bit. And they don't, they don't internalize, I think, the message as much. And that really can be problematic for young adults who went through childhood and really like grow into grownups that have no idea what their medical problems are, you know, Mm -hmm. even though they've been attending these visits with their parents, but the conversation hasn't been with them. So yeah. Teenagers are a little bit tricky, um, but I think, you know, I just like to same thing. I just like to empower the patient as the person who's in charge. Um, and I do that starting with, you know, young children all the way up through adolescents and teens and adults. And, you know, the patient needs to know what, what, what's going on. So um, that definitely, I think, helps for them to feel empowered to be able to manage this stuff and to not take those risks. But it's harder, you know, they're eating out of the house more often. So they just mm-hmm. need to have that increased level of awareness and care.
0: No, that makes sense. And it totally backs up what the parents telling them as well, which can be really helpful, I'm sure.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Yep. It's always it's always easier to have that, you know, extra, extra Mm -hmm. expert in your corner to say, yep, I told you so, but Mm -hmm. in a nicer way. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So another thing that I've heard happening is people who maybe have never had an allergy, and then all of a sudden, they're 40, 50, and they're allergic to something. And you know, it's quite severe, like, for example, like a mold allergy, or you mentioned earlier that food allergies sometimes can come later in life. So I just wondered why why that sometimes happens.
1: So there is an interesting um, aspect of food allergy that I like to think about as, I kind of think about it as a secondary form of food allergy, and this is something that is called the pollen food allergy syndrome, or some people refer to this as the oral allergy syndrome, and the reason why is because these allergenic proteins that we find in various fresh fruits and vegetables, nuts, seeds, and legumes um, are cross reactive with allergenic proteins that we find in pollen allergens. So, as people will develop or change their environmental allergies over time, um, sometimes these problems with food go hand in hand. And for example, um, you know, here in Virginia where I live, we have a really vicious tree pollen season in the springtime. We have a lot of different species of trees in our area that are very problematic for both children and adults, and very common around here are the trees in the birch family, which include um, oak, which is what we like like to refer to as like the yellow dust of spring that covers everything. Um, but oak, birch, beech, and alder are trees that are all in the same family. Up to 40% of individuals with these environmental allergens, um, they may develop problems of this pollen food allergy syndrome. And often this is going to manifest with um, oral cavity symptoms of itching, tingling, or mild swelling of the lips, the tongue, the gums, the roof of the mouth, or the back of the throat. And most of the time we see this with ingestion of these various foods in the raw form. However, over 90% of individuals can then tolerate those foods in the cooked form. So a great example is biting into an apple and getting you know lip swelling and mouth tingling yet that same patient can sit down and have a slice of apple pie without any problems in fact i saw a little boy today um, who is about the same age as your daughter um, and he had new symptoms with um peaches and so mm-hmm. it's the same family that birch family um, of trees and he had very significant allergies so interesting when we tested him for peach um, his testing to peach was negative and you'll see a mix. So some people might have positive testing for those foods. Some may be equivocal or borderline and some of the tests may be completely negative. However, the symptoms are the same and the management really is the same no matter how the test results come back for these correlating foods when we see large sensitization to those correlating pollens. So that's one problem that we see in adulthood there's kind of um, two others aside from pollen food allergy that fall into this group. One is a problem um, of adults who develop dust mite allergy or house dust mite allergy, which is an environmental allergen. Um, it's an inhalant allergen that is present in all of our homes. doesn't matter how often we clean or dust, um, but they're these little microscopic mites that they predominantly live in the pillow, the mattress, our sheets and blankets, the sofa, et cetera. And, As adults develop dust mite allergy, um, sometimes they become um, reactive to various crustaceans, especially shrimp. And the reason why is because the allergenic protein is found in the exoskeleton of the dust mites and it's also found in the exoskeleton of shellfish and that's called Mm -hmm. tropomycin. So we see that it's very similar to the cross reactivity we see with pollen food allergy, with the exception of the fact that it's literally the same allergenic protein. It's just both in environmental and food allergens. So that we see. And then I would say the third group of, um, food allergies that we see in adults, um, is a very, um, it's a very interesting and unique, um, type of food allergy that we see in this part of the country where I live, um, here in Virginia. And this is a, an allergy that may develop to a specific carbohydrate that's found in mammalian red meat, such as, you know, beef, pork, um, lamb, venison, Um, And this carbohydrate, which is called galactose, alpha-1,3 galactose, or we've nicknamed it alpha-gal, this allergy to this carbohydrate in some people will develop following a tick bite with something called the lone star tick, which is endemic in our area here. And so Mm -hmm. those individuals... Um, can manifest with symptoms of anaphylaxis, but in a delayed setting. So typically when we're talking about anaphylaxis, as we talked about earlier, we're talking about symptoms that happen within seconds to minutes to maybe an hour or two following an ingestion and usually no later than that. However, in this example with alpha-gal allergy, usually we're going to see symptoms of anaphylaxis within four to six hours of an ingestion. And the reason why is because we have to start to digest this mammalian meat in order for this carbohydrate entity to be even available for our immune system to see. And that just takes time. So that's, um, that's a very interesting um, you know, food allergy scenario that we tend to see um, in this part of the country because of the presence of these Lone Star ticks. So very fascinating stuff. Almost sounds like science fiction, but it's totally real.
0: Yeah, that is fascinating. And that must be really hard to pick up on what it is. Like if the reaction's four to six hours after, I could see that, you know, kind of stepping people for a while. For sure.
1: And on the contrary of that, you know, I do see a fairly large population of patients who have a totally different problem that manifests though also with symptoms of anaphylaxis. And this is a problem where their mast cells are hyperreactive or hyperresponsive, And those individuals may have anaphylaxis without an obvious trigger. And they're often misdiagnosed with food allergy because, or many food allergies, because they're having these symptoms very often, but without necessarily having a trigger, the problem is really just with their cells not behaving properly. So, um, so yeah, anaphylaxis without an obvious trigger is very, very tricky um, and requires significant evaluation for sure.
0: And so then the re um the reaction is treated with with epinephrine for all of those
1: it is it yeah. is because it doesn't matter what the you know what the trigger for it is. the management is really going to be the same, yeah mm-hmm. even yeah. for the mast cell. Correct. Activation piece. Yeah. Yep. So everyone, all of these patients who have mast cell disorders, um, specifically mast cell activation syndrome, is what we're talking about here. Um, they all just as much need an emergency plan, and emergency treatment medication. You know, with good instructions of what to do and when. So yeah, so that's a tricky. That's a tricky problem to manage. But um, I'm becoming more adept at that as my patient population is is substantially growing. Um, mm-hmm for those patients. So, you know, it's just more people to help, which is great.
0: Yeah. And I'm also, I've never heard of the pollen food one, but my son also has, um, oak and birch. So, um, Mm -hmm. I will be watching for that. That's interesting.
1: Yeah. I usually will provide parents with kind of a list. Like for example, this little boy that I saw today with, um, with symptoms, after ingestion of raw peaches, you know, so I'll provide um, to his mom and his dad um, a good list of what are all the foods that are cross reactive in this category. And the point of that is not to say, don't eat them. But the point of them is to say to be aware of them because, you know, I think sometimes as parents too, you know, your kids sitting at the dinner table and they're like pushing their carrots around and they don't want to eat it, and it's easy to say like, you know, we really want you to eat some carrots before you, before you finish your dinner or whatever, right? You can't have you can't go on to whatever the treat is after your dinner. Yeah. If you can't eat carrots and and sometimes recognizing, you know, the reason why your child may not be eating them is not because they want to be difficult, but they may be having symptoms that doesn't that don't make them feel good that they can't verbalize very well what they're experiencing. So just having that knowledge of what are the foods that are associated with these allergens, I think it's helpful to kind of just be able to really assess what's going on in your household
0: absolutely i totally agree and i've talked about that on the podcast a little bit that i was never that parent that was you know you've got to eat everything on your plate and i really honestly thank god now because i think we could have ended up in a lot more situations especially with my daughter because it took until she was able to verbalize at about 18 months that her lips were burning mm-hmm. that's when i finally realized something was going on allergy wise before that i just thought oh you know what she's just really picky like she doesn't like baked goods she does doesn't like eggs, she doesn't like, and I couldn't find, it took me forever to figure out that common theme and she couldn't tell me. So I, I totally agree that sometimes they know a lot more than we think.
1: (laughs) Right. And it's funny too, because even as kids start to describe things, sometimes they don't describe them in the way that makes sense to us as adults. You know, they'll use the word spicy or something and it's not spicy, but you know, maybe their, their lips feel like they're tingling or something like they would if you, you know, put some, you know, whatever chili pepper on your lips or something like that. So, you know, they may use words that that don't reflect how you recognize foods to be, but it's it's interesting to kind of see it through their see it through their eyes and to start to understand their experience.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And and then even still it took me a while and I was like her lips are burning and I could see a little swelling <laughs> and that's when I finally thought, "Oh my gosh, like this is an allergy situation and sure. you know, had no had no forewarning, you know, she was pretty little." So, right. Um, And and just on food allergies, like I've noticed over the years, and I obviously pay more attention because I have a child with food allergies, but just there can be a real stigma for those children, you know, either in the media and the classroom. And it does definitely um, help if you do have a really uh, allergy conscious school or school board. But I just wondered if you have any thoughts or experience in what can be done to sort of reduce that stigma around food allergies. And even just increasing the overall awareness for others?
1: Sure. I mean, I think certainly something like this, this podcast that you're putting out is so good because I mean, think about your listenership and and so many people that may not have known so much information about food allergy and, and just to expand the minds of others. But, um, but I do, I think it's something that needs to be talked about within the community. Um, and I think it's something that, that, Patients and families need to know, um, isn't, you know there's not anything wrong with them. This is just who they are, and they always need to be able to speak up about their food allergens. Um, in fact, just maybe a week or two ago, I saw a gentleman who's, who's a young adult. He's a new young adult who's moved away from home. And, and for him, it's hard when he maybe goes to a restaurant with his friends to speak up about, you know, that being around, being in the presence of other people eating shellfish makes him feel sick and makes him feel Mm -hmm. bad. And so, you know, we just really worked on kind of empowering him um, to know about how to talk about it with people who care about him and who he cares about. So that way he doesn't, you know, end up in a situation um, that could be potentially dangerous or even life threatening to him. So you know it's important for for everyone to understand that um, that this is just part of what we experience. You know now more so than ever. So um, yeah, a lot of you know education and awareness, even things like you know the teal pumpkin project, which is mm-hmm. um, a specific um tool that is um out in the world around Halloween time to really help protect our food allergy kids when it comes to you know having uh, food allergy safe treats at Halloween time and things like that so mm-hmm. you know there's a, there's a I think a lot of um push towards a lot of education Um, In our communities. And um, I think that that's really helpful to build awareness and to help um, kids with food allergies just feel like normal kids, you know, because they really are. They're really just normal kids.
0: Absolutely. I love the teal pumpkin idea. Um, And I always try to think like, ooh, what could I send that's a non-food thing whenever there's celebrations? And interestingly, this year, my children were able to attend in-person school. Um, So our schools were open most of the year, but with COVID, they weren't allowed to have uh, communal treats brought in. That were shared. Sure, sure. And it was something that I actually noticed was one positive thing for us is there was a lot less of this um, having her felt, you know, to feel left out that she couldn't participate in whatever the treat was, or having to make sure that she had an alternative treat, which I always leave, sure. you know, a big bag of treats at the school for her with the teacher so that if something does come in that I'm not aware of. But, um, you know, this year, it was just kind of less of an issue. And I sort of thought, yeah, that was, you know, one, at least positive thing for her she didn't feel that push so much so um yeah i think yeah i've seen that in school as well same thing yeah Yeah, for sure sure so i just wondered if there were any other you know tools or advice that you would kind of want to recommend to listeners before we wrap up um either whether it's you know to increase their awareness or for someone who is struggling with allergies
1: Well, you know, I would say one tip is that um, I think sometimes with primary care, and maybe this is more so with adults, but I think primary care doctors um, have a really tough, tough, you know, job because there's so many things that need to be addressed in such a, you know, minuscule amount of time that, you know, that's allowable any longer. And it's just so, so hard to manage things like allergy. And so I think, um, you know, maybe this is the parent of a child with, with eczema that just, doesn't feel like they're getting better with the guidance getting they're getting from primary care, or um, maybe it's an adult who has you know, bad symptoms of rhinitis or chronic cough that may just be getting kind of brushed over because there's too many other things to address. Um, you know, there are specialists out there, like me, um, mm-hmm. who you know, take care of children and adults who are suffering with um, allergies and other problems like recurrent infections. And, you know, we help patients to overcome these burdens, to get to the bottom of the problems that are causing their symptoms, and to help people find solutions, not necessarily with more medications, but often with less medications, um, but a lot of education and a lot of time to really dedicate to improving the health and well-being of children and adults who are suffering. So, you know, if you're you know, if you're finding that either you or your child, you're not getting, you know, what you need in the realm of, of allergy um, from, you know, from where you're starting from, you know, seek out care from a specialist. Um, And, you know, it's funny, because even when I think back to those early days, remember, when I was a resident, and I was thinking about, you know, pursuing mm-hmm. cardiology, and I thought, I don't know if that's for me, you know, maybe I'm going to Um, try something else. And I remember the very first time I started expressing, you know, I think I'm going to pursue allergy and clinical immunology. And I remember, you know, even just such a common misconception of even some other trainees at my institution were like, oh, you're going to be dealing with like sniffling and coughing for the rest of your life. And it's like, yeah, but what a difference, what a difference all of this makes um, Mm -hmm. for our patients. So, um, so anyhow, I would say, you know, my biggest advice is, you know, be your greatest healthcare care advocate and, and get the care that you need because there's people like me who are out here um, who are available to help and to make a tremendous difference in the trajectory of the way people live. So it's really it's really awesome. It's super rewarding.
0: No, that's great advice. You're right. You do have to definitely be your own advocate or your child's advocate um, sure. in order to be feeling the best. So that's great. So how can listeners find out more about you and your clinic, either social media, online? What are all the places? So my private practice is called Kaufman Allergy, Asthma and
1: Immunology. And we are located in Northern Virginia in the suburb of Washington, D.C. called Vienna. And um, so if you're in the Northern Virginia area, please come and see me in the office. Um, you can find out more about me and my practice online at KaufmanAllergy.com, which is K-A-U-F-M-A-N allergy.com. And on social media, um, you can mostly find me on Facebook at Kaufman Allergy or on Instagram at Dr. Allergy.
0: Perfect. So I will link up to those in the show notes and then people can click away uh, and find out more about you. So thank you so much, Dr. Kaufman. I think this was a wonderful allergy 101 for people and and even beyond that into looking at some more specifics um, and digging into certain areas. I really appreciate your time and your expertise today. So thank you so much. It's been a
1: pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much to Dr. Karen Kaufman for joining us this week on the Learning to Slay the Beast podcast. I learned so much, not only about environmental allergies, but also food allergies. And it's been something that I feel like I can't learn enough about, especially when it comes to protecting your child or protecting others in your community and understanding what is really going on with both environmental and food allergies. So if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Kaufman, as she mentioned, you can visit her website which is www.kaufmanallergy.com, or visit her on instagram at dr.kauffmanallergy thanks again for joining us and have a great week i wrote a book and i am so excited to share it with all of you pendulum by Essie german is now available the story follows a young boy named Ben as he changes from a silly, energetic, happy little guy to a boy that is anxious, obsessive, emotional, angry, and depressed. After visiting 20 doctors and getting seven misdiagnoses, his mental health declining even further he's finally diagnosed with PANDAS, a neuroimmune disorder. PANDAS stands for Pediatric Autoimmune Neuropsychiatric Disorder Associated with Streptococcal Infections. It's a little-known and understood disorder without a cure. At eight years old, Ben and his family move to a new city to start a new life. He gains confidence, navigates his first crush, and plays competitive sports. Ben encounters many challenges in a new school while also coping with his mental health issues and trying to understand and accept himself and his disorder. Ben shares how he handles all the trials of being a middle grader and having pandas and his unique outlook on both the disorder and his life. Pendulum is available at Amazon.com. Amazon.ca, and also through the Friesen Press bookstore. It can be found in hardcover, paperback, and the ebook. I hope you will check it out soon. I'm excited to announce the launch of my author website, www.se-german.com. On this website, you can find out all the information about my publications, focused areas on my novel Pendulum by S.E. German, where there are questions for parents as you work through the novel with your children, as well as teacher resources that can be used in the classroom. There's also information about the Learning to Slay the Beast podcast and recent press. Please visit www.se-german.com. Thank you for listening to the Learning to Slay the Beast podcast. Please keep in mind this podcast is not intended to be medical or professional advice. If you are looking for that advice, please seek that out from a professional. If you'd like to hear more from me, you can visit my blog, www.theallergybeast.wordpress.com, or follow me online at sarah lady gluten on instagram s-a-r-a-l-a-d-y-g-l-u-t-e-n or the facebook page sarah hyphen lady gluten if you do like the podcast please consider subscribing so that you will get the podcast update every week and or reviewing the podcast on whatever platform you listen to thanks again and have a great week